Okay, thank you for uh, bearing with us. We had a few technical difficulties, but we're ready to get started now. And I wanted to welcome you all to Read Aloud. Uh, this week's Read Aloud has been programmed by the Ohio Anna Library, and that being the case, I'm going to turn the floor over to Linda Hanks, the director. And thanks to all of you for coming out on a possibly rainy day. <laughs> I'm not going to pin this on because I'm not going to have it in my hand that long. Um, it's our pleasure at Ohioana to join with the Read Aloud folks here with the Ohio State Libraries. Ohioana, you may never have heard of, but um, we're one of one very special library. We collect, preserve, and promote the work of Ohio writers, musicians, and artists. We do that... Um, through our special collection where you will find, if at all possible, every copy of um, an author's book in our collection, biographical files on more than 22 Ohio authors, musicians, artists, and others of note, and through publishing the Ohio and a Quarterly, which you'll find in the back, and it doesn't say complimentary copy. I think it says 650. Those are complimentary copies. You're welcome to take one with you. Um, our third program, then, is our Ohioana Awards. Um, the Ohioana Awards started in 1942 and include nine different award programs. But today I want to talk about our award for editorial excellence. And the reason we're here is that the journal Ohio State's Literary Magazine received Ohioana's Literary Excellence Award under the um, co-editors of Kathy Fagan and Michelle Herman in uh, 2004. And so we want to, to say congratulations once again to them, bring forth the wonderful things that the journal has done for nearly 33 years. 34, 34? okay. I well, next year when we do a program like this, we'll be celebrating the 35th anniversary. Good reason. Uh, I, I kind of threw this out to Kathy late, late last week, and she accepted the challenge. So I promised that we would do another program and have it planned far ahead. Ohioana has watched the journal through many of its 34 years. Um, one of the former editors was David Satino. David was recognized for a number of books that he did. He was um, a career award winner, I believe, in 2004? 2003. Yes. And um, received our first ever Ohio Winner Poetry Award for an Ohio poet for the body of the work. And if you'll not release it to the media, you have in your midst uh, the 2007 um, winner of the Ohio Winner Poetry Award for the body of her work. So with that, we're not allowed to release it to the media until later, but Kathy knows and her nominator know, and we want to just celebrate all the wonderful things that Kathy has done. So from 
this, I turn it over to Kathy as editor of the journal. Okay. And while she's getting up, um, I understand there's a person here who and the magazines and read and talk and everything at the same time, so I'm going to sit, if that's all right. Um, I, can, I can clip it. Does that work? Okay, well, as Linda said, the journal's been in continuous production since May of 1973, so it is 34, exactly 34 years old. Um, which isn't bad for a magazine that's been virtually unfunded for 34 years to be in continuous production for that long. Um, the journal prides itself um, on its long tradition of featuring emerging writers, by which we mean um, young writers, new writers, underrepresented writers, underrecognized writers, and simply the uncategorizable. Okay? Um, we discover writers often early in their careers, um, before they go on to win Guggenheim's and um, Genius Grants from the MacArthur. Um, in 2004, um, we had a 30th, the journal was 31 in 2004, if you're keeping track, but we had a 30th anniversary <laughs> celebration, because I like to shave off those years as often as I can, um, featuring poetry readers Linda Beards, Carl Phillips, and um, Bob Hickok at the AWP in Chicago, which was enormously successful. It was a big deal and a terrific event. Um, but it wasn't until this morning, actually preparing for this event, um, that I realized um, the sheer volume of the work that we've published over the years. It, it really sort of made my knees buckle under me to see name after name after name after name, poets, fiction writers, nonfiction writers. It's absolutely astonishing, and I'm sort of humbled in the presence of all of this work, um, and I don't wonder why I'm tired. Um, Michelle Herman, unfortunately, she's meeting with the dean right now, and she couldn't be here. Um, she sends her regrets uh, and her hellos and her thanks for being here. Um, she's been fiction editor since um, 1989, um, with some help from student editors, a lot of help, actually, from her student editors. Um, several years ago, Don, what year was that that Bakhtin was taken? Was it 96, 99? Was it 2000? Something like that. So maybe five or six years ago. Um, we have in, in, the magaz in magazine land a slush pile, um, just this vast mountain of, of unsolicited fiction, poetry and nonfiction. Um, and in it sat a story by um, Don Pollock, um, who is now an MFA student um, in Ohio State's program. Um, and he now also recently signed a contract with Doubleday for his first collection of stories, Knock 'em Stiff. So I'm going to begin there. But Michelle, first, she asked me to read. She actually sent me on a wild goose chase to find a poem that she had had hanging on her door for several years. Um, and now I'm sure... Oh, and I thought I had found it, and then Brock said, no, I found it, but I don't know. I'm bigger than Brock, so I'm going to read the one that I think is <laughs> the one that she means. That's it. I'm the boss lady. Called Rejection Slip by the poet Allison Joseph, who's actually an editor herself um, at the Crab Orchard Review in, um, in Illinois. It's a little pantoum. Um, rejection Slip. This isn't any comment on your work. 
We're overstocked right now, so try again. All editors will have their stupid quirks. We'll let you know when next it's best to send. We're overstocked right now, so try again. Maybe you should try some other place. We'll let you know when next it's best to send. We're sorry, but this isn't to our taste. Maybe you should try some other place. You're coming close, but in the end, it's no. We're sorry, but this isn't to our taste. Forgive us if our answer is a blow. You're coming close, but in the end, it's no. We're certain that your work will find a home. Forgive, forgive us if our answer is a blow. Don't, don't send us quite so much. We can't read tomes. We're certain that your work will find a home. All editors will have their stupid quirks. Don't send us quite so much. We can't read tomes. This isn't any comment on your work. Um, luckily, we did not reject Don Pollock, and here he is to read from his story. Appreciate everybody for coming out. And um, uh, this is the first story that I ever had published, and uh, it's you know kind of special to me. Uh, some of you have heard it before, uh, and I'm not going to read the whole story. I'm going to read about four pages and then skip to the end. So this is called Back Pain. I'd been staying out around Massyville with my crippled uncle because I was broke and unwanted everywhere else. And I spent most of my days changing his flop bucket and sticking fresh cigarettes in his smoke hole. Every 24 hours, I wiped him off with a wet cloth and turned his broken body over to er er everything out. He'd been totaling a freak car crash and ended up with a giant settlement that cursed him with enough money to vegetate the rest of his sorry-ass life. I was supposed to be staying straight. His daughter had even insisted I sign a goddamn scrap of paper. But late one night, I found myself fucked up in a strange car, littered with flakes of dead skin and stole stolen tools and those gas station cassettes that are always on sale for $1.99. The driver was a hillbilly guy named Jimmy who kept calling me cousin. But I couldn't even remember meeting him, let alone seeing him at one of the reunions we used to have when our family was still permitted in the state park. Still being the type of person I was, I'd apparently let him into, talk me into huffing several cans of back pain, and then I was sick, and my brain felt like a frozen bleach bottle. As snow swirled all around us in the Walmart parking lot, I rinsed the inside of my face with Jimmy's last beer and vowed never to stick my head in a bread sack again. Sometime after that, around 3 a.m., we ended up at the Krispy Kreme looking for Phil, who was supposed to have some second-all suppositories left over from his dead dad's unsuccessful bout with cancer. The cream is the only thing open in our town after the bars closed where you might find people like us, but there was just Mrs. Leach the cross-eyed waitress, who always creeped me out because once, in jail, I'd held her son in my arms. Wherever I went in those days, I stumbled across the bill collectors and misfortunes of my past, while any chance of a future worth living kept staying farther and farther away. We ordered coffee, and then Jimmy and I sat down in a corner booth away from the old lady so she didn't have to look at us. 
Why worry an old woman at that time of night? The place is all windows and plastic woodwork and those buzzing fluorescent lights that always make me look like a corpse. A radio in the back is playing a fast Christmas song that only religious people could understand. That's the last time I do any of that stuff, I said. I was talking to fucking Fred Flintstone that last came. Fumbling with a cigarette, I took a chance. Surprised I didn't ignite. Fuck, all I ever get is the sirens and those goddamn goofy lights. Jimmy pushed back a wad of crusty hair. He had sideburns that didn't match, and the eyes of a man you wouldn't trust with a milk cow. One time, though, out at the torch drive-in, I did get eaten by a giant bird. He said this with great feeling, like he was recalling his first kiss or the best day he'd ever lived. Son of a bitch pulled me out of the car like I was a little worm. Damn, cousin, that was a good time. Mrs. Leach brought the pot, set two cups down, smeared with orange lipstick and chocolate thumb cream. Looking up at her, Jimmy asked, hey girl, how's that old Lester doing these days? I motioned with my hand for him to shut up, but he'd already blurted it out. Cream was all she said. Though she was looking at Jimmy, her face was turned toward me because of the awful way her eyes would scramble. Heartache and ridicule and the night shift had turned her into a coffee-spilling zombie. She could have nailed a cross to her forehead and the woman wouldn't have changed her expression. Then, without waiting for a reply, she turned and trudged back to the shiny counter. Her white waitress pants sagging in the ass and stained with coffee spots and donut grease. If I were a man running for office, she was just the kind of person I might appeal to. What the fuck's the matter with you? Don't you know he's dead? I said in a low voice, hoping your mom wouldn't hear him. Who died? Jimmy asked, tearing open a little plastic thimble full of artificial cream. You mean Lester? He's the one hung himself in the jail last summer, I whispered, covering my cup with my hand as some of the red crusty skin around his mouth flaked off and dropped onto the table. Shit, Jimmy said loudly, slapping his tattooed hands together. I remember now. He lit a cigarette and glanced back at Lester's mom. She was picking pieces of lint off her frayed sweater, dropping them to the floor like little mashed cooties. Oh well, he said, shrugging his skinny shoulders. What you gonna do? Hell, me and Lester went to school together. He motioned with his cup toward Mrs. Leach. I know that old bag all my life. Then without thinking, I said, I was there when they cut him down. It seemed that I always talked about shit that I didn't want to talk about, but could never say the things I wanted to say. Had a trash bag wrapped around his neck, I added. I could still see the young deputy dropping his big key ring, screaming on the radio for backup. Before I knew it, I'd wrapped my arms around Lester's quivering legs and lifted him up, his piss soaking through the top of my orange jumpsuit. I was doing Tim's chain-faced days to shoplifting a lousy package of cheese. And for a brief second or two, I saw saving him as a chance to prove that I was better than that. But when the deputy ran down the stairs, I grew confused, then went. I hoped nobody would know the difference. The day before, Lester had pushed a pencil up his dick. It was his greatest accomplishment. I'll never forget the way he kicked when I let him go. I can see killing yourself, but not with no fucking trash bags, Jimmy said. If you keep doing that spray lube and shit, you won't have to worry about it. 
The glass doors swung open and two big homely women walked in looking guilty. They were the kind of women who, out of sheer loneliness, end up doing kinky stuff with candy bars, wake up with apple fritters in their hair. They looked over at us with bold little smiles that indicated either stupidity or desperation. Jimmy leaned back in the booth, eyeing them like a desert sheep buying a keeper at a white slave auction. Well, 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 he said. No way, I told him. Shit, I ain't had none in a month. I'd blow the top of that one's head off. And now I'm going to skip to the end. Okay. Just mind your own business, okay, I said. Turning away, I looked out the window at the snowy street, hoping someone would show up with enough stuff to put me under. At one time, I'd practically been considered a handsome man, a regular party boy. Decent women called me by my real name while the strippers at Tater Brown's let me light their cigarettes. But that was before some ugly bastard named Tex Colburn caught me in the Paint Creek Bottom, picking through a patch of buds that he'd been planning on ripping off himself. By the time he ran me down in that cornfield, he was so pissed that he had his boys hold me while I chipped my front teeth out one by one with a spiked nail he pulled out of a rotten fence post. Every time I flinched, he cut up my lips. Now I was at the mercy. Of a welfare dentist who spent most of his office hours at the clinic trading spit with the volunteer eye doctor. In the reflection from the glass, I tried out one of my old smiles, but the happy shit days were gone, and I sat staring somberly into a pink, toothless cave. Well, fuck, I said after a few minutes, and turning back to face Jimmy, who was busy pouring sugar out of the dispenser and dividing it into two lines with a coffee spoon. What you think? Hey, I don't even know this girl fucker, he said. We're just going to sit around all night or what? The clock shaped like a donut said 4.20 a.m. Though I hated to admit it, Bill was probably passed out somewhere, enjoying his dead father's legacy. I found myself wishing I had a loved one who would die and leave me their barbiturate, but I couldn't think of anyone who'd ever loved me that much. My uncle had already promised his to the mail lady. God damn him, I said, half expecting Jimmy to snort the white crystal spread out on the table. We could always do another can, he suggested, his face hovering just inches above the glittering column. I thought about going back to my uncle's house, snaking out the crawling tubes, listening to the poor bastard repeat the same bitter stories over and over again. Behind us, the two big women were busy exchanging obscene fantasies, making suction sounds with their mouths, while poor Mrs. Bleach dozed on her blue feet behind the display case. Man, that shit just eats me up, I groaned, already feeling sleepy from the thaw beneath her smell. Detecting a hint of surrender in my voice, Jimmy looked up and smiled with all his soft, twisted cheeks. You just say the word, Chaz, he told me. I decided to ignore him. Besides, what was there to say? Because of who we were, I already knew what we were doing. In a few minutes, Jimmy and I would leave this place and go find somewhere to park in his filthy car. He would fill up the plastic bag again with vaccines 
And I would sit and listen to him suck the cold fog down into his lungs. The smell of it would sicken me, and I would crack the window. The snow would slowly cover the windshield. Jimmy's eyes would turn as red and sticky as candy, and his head would fall back against the seat in the dream. If he were lucky tonight, maybe he would see something that he hadn't seen before. And then it would be my turn. Thanks. Thank, thank you. Thanks. I do have to say, having having just defended and um, just a few minutes ago, and to be reading Leo's poems here, she was my first teacher and a next door neighbor, and a really good friend. It's a it's a convergence that she would appreciate. So I'm happy to do it. So thanks. Uh, this first poem is called Disturbances. Is this better sound wise? Yeah. Disturbances. The way the vine quivers like an ear listening for a bird at the tangled center. In winter, it measures emptiness, the way a gaze lands on the space below that boy's pinned sleeve. The question it sketches over and over, whose body just now entered air and where did it go with the bloom of its best idea? Uh, and this next one is called Dance. Songs from far away are coming. They hum and gather. How do they pass so safely through the noose of each green link in the fence? No, each honeycomb, let it be, held wide open as an eye for sweets, spare room to move into, paper house, a breeze finds ripe to rifle. Let us, wishing origins on things, say mockingbird and loon. Bestow a shapeliness to keep it in. Bestow intention. Then wishing more, let us see the cinched waist of the wasp 
close up on the peeling sill, its hobbled tail a huge still moving late at night, so late in the season. Let us quadrille, flirtation in its slowing. Uh, And this last poem is called Agreement. It looks like mutual agreement between the wind and trees. One turns away, the other goes free. On what is the agreement written then? The white-tipped wings of the mockingbird, the heavy vine accepts as harsh good and necessary evil, harvester, servant, thief, Hail's agreement, water shall come disguised as stone, and soup agrees, the blood of roots will run together, sweet, savory, and the pot of the land shall be all of yours to share. Bread agrees to break, in your dream agree to knit, though you cannot knit, agree you never imagined such grief and greed. Let green be the coat of everything relentlessly alive. This rock and that, when split down the middle, agree to produce a wall of children between them. And when the squirrel finally pries the lid off the garbage can and runs away, the lid clattering, the squirrel up a tree, its black claws and pounding heart, luck, escape, let's agree that's gratitude reigning from the highest steady branch. Thank you. We also have Jason Gray, the former um, student editor on the journal, who's taken a little time off his current job at OSU Press to read for us. Jason? series of poems by a poet named Jean Gallagher. She, um, these poems are a part of a series called Episodes in the History of Photography, and they formed uh, part of her first book called This Minute. And we actually nominated one of these for the push card. I forget which one, though. Now, we got it for a different poem, but it is an honor to be nominated. All right. Episodes in the History of Photography. Childhood, circa 1903. Jacques-Henri Lepardie. I can't read yet, but I still know that I am something born for happiness. The flight down stone steps, the air whistling the word balustrade, like something the troubadours hide in their persons. The luckiest angels, the ones of gravity, lick my ears like puppies. My cat jumps like a star. My red ball lifts off my nurse's eyes, aloft like a brand new saint's. Gravity is my own god, the one who lets me trick him, the one who allows everything, as long as everything lasts just a second, just enough for the clicking sound of my eye, giving way into the nothing, the glorious, the temporary, surrounding my flying, falling, leaping beloveds, 
who will never in my book die. Episodes in the history of photography, Storyville Brothel, New Orleans, 1912, E.J. Balak. Every ghost through here leaves a spill. Yours the polite nowhere look and God's own error on your shoulders asking, what is the future and where? Not yet scratched in its mirror, I can tell you. And the lightning run through my black stocking and the patent fire strap of my black shoe and the satin pillow full of money burning in the glass shawl I break to wear. Thank you. You never fail to say and leave the picture splinters on the bed. Episodes in the history of photography, Bal Musette, 1931, Facade. Somewhere here is the secrecy of the open heart, the hidden promenade of it, the whistle and shush, if you have ears to hear. Otherwise, your eye fills up on desire's empty chemical lumen the blinking, scattershot surface of a whole insular ocean. The tuxedo girls, the two boys sharing the one suit, the local butchers dancing in their sleep, awake in the roar of a great sweet privacy. The photograph is the red satin herring, the burnt paper fancy dress between you and what love looks like to itself. <laughs> Trying to get under the static there. I can do it without. What do you want? There's only one more. Oh, okay. Episodes in the history of photography, Wall, Chicago, 1948, Aaron Siskin. I built my eye a house in the unmakings where intention unzips its long silk coat and lets out the accident it always carries, the soft grenade in its heart pocket. Here the oxygen blooms awry, here the water slides its knife, and here the forgiven local gods walk their steadfast entropic walk, saying, there is no abandonment, just the varied unending attentions, some personal, some not. Here the goddess of the water stain shakes the box of alphabets in her arms and says, come and get it. Dust letter, fire letter, let me read you while I can, silently first, then out loud. Thanks. Um, so I figured there needed to be some nonfiction at this party, and uh, what <laughs> what better essay than one from a former editor of the journal and one about writing? So here's The Way We Do the Things We Do by David Satino. When writers get together at conferences, they chat. After the exchange of the obligatory, how goes it, and so what are you working on? With that wary, close-to-the-vest withholding of current projects a writer can exhibit, talk often turns to the how of it all. How are you writing these days? Inquiring scriveners want to know. What word processing system? Laptop? Big screen? How much RAM are you packing? How many gigs? What number of Pentium are you up to now? The evolution of the how of writing 
on the cultural and personal level can be a fascinating topic. Way back, writers scratched in mud, on stone, shards of pottery, temple and tome and in privy wall, clay tablet, papyrus, vellum. Writing was a specialty of scribes and priests. I'm fond of telling my Bible as literature students that though adherents of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are called people of the book, it's only in relatively recent times that a majority of believers could actually read their holy books. The words of Yahweh, Allah, or Jesus were often spoken and heard, chanted and toned, shouted, whispered, and sung, but they were seldom read. Now the words of the prophets are written on thin pages of countless books of holy writ, and even, as Simon and Garfunkel told us, on the subway walls. Of course, writing is a relatively newfangled invention compared to language, that is to say, speech. Writing is the graphic representation of the sounds of language, the voice rendered into code. It has a permanence far beyond the human voice, which fades with the air that carries it. Besides, it was easier to portray in hieroglyphs the mighty deeds of the great Ramses than to train slaves to recite and chant the God King's lengthy resume to each and every citizen of his age and those of the future. I began my writing career with finger paints and Crayola's finest, and then a fat lady pencil that I'd wield to make marks on gray, wide-lined paper. The religious Sisters of Mercy were my first writing coaches. They stood by in black habits, watching me form letters, block and cursive. I then graduated to even harsher critics, the Jesuits. <laughs> Pages of my compositions bore at the top the markings LDS, for Laos Die Semper, Praise God Always, or AMDG, Ad Majorum Dea Glorium, for the greater glory of God. Even when my sports articles for the school newspaper were written under the watchful eye of heaven, I had high ambitions back then. I've come down to earth since, thank goodness. It's hard to write when God and the entire communion of saints and archangel choirs are reading over your shoulder, ready to attack with red and blue pencils. It's hard enough to write for human editors. After so many years of scribbling, I have boxes and boxes of my writing stored in the attic, basement, and garage. My personal archive and museum, I may decide soon to give them up. How many pounds of pulp have I processed? I shudder to think. As I open the boxes, the silos, and bins of my life, I uncover acres of furrowed fields where I try to plant something, then to weed and hoe, and pray for the sun and rains of days and days to bless. I've always drafted my work on lined, yellow pads, standard, legal, standard or legal-sized. Did I, do I unconsciously try to fit the poem to the page? Am I now ruled by the number of lines that can fit on the screen? I favored various versions of Parker, Papermate, and Bic ballpoint pens over the years. Time is changing what I've done in, percept in perceptible ways. The black or blue ink on these pages is tinged and greenish-blue. The yellow of the oldest pages is fading to brown and has gone brittle. The sheets rustle as I handle them, reminding me of oak or maple leaves that fell from their branches weeks ago. The oldest white sheets are typescripts and carbon copies, ghostly letters on onion skin. Some of these pages have periods and commas punched in by my old Underwood manual typewriter, a wonderful and durable machine that would clatter and tap with a satisfying precision as I banged on its keyboard. The perforations on these poems a tell, tell a tale letters and marks of punctuation like Florida ballot chads, holes letting in the light or, or hanging or just pregnant. That typewriter had its own personality, its own fingerprints. Its keys were inordinately fond of the ribbon. They chewed it, sometimes cleaned through. Consequently, I had a severe vowel problem. My A's, E's, and O's tended to close up. Some consonants clotted as well. 
F's, T's, and Q's. I used a special fluid to clean my letters, make them gleam again, brushing their teeth after every heavy meal of poetry or prose. Boxes not as old hold, tre hold treasures generated by the different electric typewriters I've used. The typescript pages are stained with blotches of correct type and powdery kisses of whiteout, not to mention burns from the ash, cigar, and pipe, which once upon a time wafted and wreathed smoke about my head as I wrote, and the circles, arcs, and dribbles from countless coffee cups. Errors were so much more difficult to fix back then. The original had to be corrected, and then the carbon copy. Expert typists were in greater demand than they are today, and a time before spell checkers, proofreading was, ne was a necessity, even more dire. Is it that we need, then, to take greater care with our words? Just as baseball players are reminded of their errors game by game and season after season, the writers put their miscues down on paper to live through the ages. Computers make the physical aspects of writing a great deal easier. When I was a young writer, I composed like a young writer, my head fat with romantic notions. I felt that in order to, cre to create a poem, I had to feel, actually feel the paper, grip in my hand the pencil or pen, the sweat of my fingers and even my brow, staining the page as I scratched away. My poetry came from that mysterious place where body, mind, and soul merged. Technology was something inimical to the poem, I believed. But it occurred to me one day that the technology of pencil and paper already was beyond me. I couldn't fashion a pencil. I was not a paper maker. I could not produce even a clay tablet and stylus, nor a single tube of finger paint. I read once that Henry David Thoreau quit working in his father's pencil factory when he felt that they'd achieved the perfect pencil. Well, I was technically, and in so many other ways, far behind Thoreau. I couldn't even make an imperfect pencil. So I began writing my poems on manual typewriters, then on electric ones, and now I use a computer. With my children, I've ridden the evolution of byte and chip and disk. I'm amazed today at how much easier revision has become. I'm less physically involved now, though a writing session still can leave me drained. My thoughts are translated by technology into electronic flashes and sparks, bits and bytes, mirroring perhaps a synapsis of the brain, axon and dendrite humming with proto-language, letters coalesce into words which arrange themselves on the screen to make a poem or essay, a lecture or university memo, a letter to a son or daughter or a shopping list. I'm still typing on a keyboard, but these days the poem moves from my head through my fingers to the screen in ways too marvelous for me to understand. Due to the effects of my fading health, multiple sclerosis to be precise, I see and feel less well these days. Like Francis of Assisi, I can call my body brother ass. Like Delmore Schwartz, this bony companion is the heavy bear who goes with me. My brain and spinal cord are dotted with lesions, tiny dark holes. And on the MRI screen, these dark stars actually appear as spatterings of light. Technology can be ironic at times. My optic nerves are inflamed, and the muscles moving my eyes like to play tricks. I see double at times, requiring prisms in my lenses to make my eyes cooperate with one another in my brain. In addition, my body fails to last, as it once did for long stretches of time at a desk. Just as my computer aids in visioning and revisioning, technology is helping me to compensate for bodily frailties. I have a large monitor. Size does matter, I've learned in my old age. I feel that I'm riding in CinemaScope. Finally, I've made it to the big screen. Time marches and I follow, hobbling a bit, waving a cane as if it were a large pencil. And now I find among my souvenirs boxes of discs, 
Some of them ancient five and a quarter inch floppies. I no longer have the equipment to read. Invention giveth and taketh away. What means lie ahead for the writer and reader I seek to be? What ways with words will open? There was the finger, the stylus, the pencil. Now we hold the Palm Pilot, the voice, the voice recognition device, and other state-of-the-art amenuances, wired and wireless. I can only close my eyes and try to dream what we'll have to say about tomorrow and how. Thanks. a couple poems by um, MFA alum Betsy Wheeler, who um, I only I met for about two minutes when I was looking for apartments when I came to Columbus for the first time. And um, what I love about these poems is they just have so much energy. And um, from meeting Betsy for two minutes, I, I got the feeling that she had the same uh, amount of energy. <laughs> Um, and this first poem I read for my um, intro to poetry class, and they really loved it. Um, and they especially loved that it has a gecko in it and a basket of fries with mayo. <laughs> so I told them concrete details. Uh, this is Bella and Bertrand barge the soda counter. They'd up and gone for ices, leaving a note behind for their gecko left sleeping behind a gray rock, which to him might as well have been a mountain. They planned to bring home for him a little something on a stick. On stools, they worried together and in worrying came to the conclusion that what was needed was washed often in the gloaming. This made them huzza. They decided to mine the bullocks. They knew all kinds of pronouns. They asked for the big straws and began their plotting of all the ways in which they would climb the nation's blunders. There were so many out there. They knew them by color and by heart. Size was another matter, and they were happy to have the means of measurement. They used a scope. They inspected a ticker tape. They had magic means for seeking out heart-seeking devices. They pretty much figured there were stockpiles. They thought really hard about plans forming in others, other people's grain noggins. When they saw, was covered in opportunity stickers. So they ordered basket fries with mayo and felt very free. They decided on a lemon bar for the spotted one at home and felt very proud of all the work they'd gotten done in public. They went on and on and on about it to each other in the neon glow of open. This next one is, for instance, your lips. Is bee stung a cliche? It might be plenty to say so red, but I've never been good with compliments. That is to say, giving or receiving. I hope that won't end poorly, this drive we've taken in your parents' car. Probably I'll keep quiet. Recording the sun and the leaves and the hills and the sun and my hand out the window, reckless, restless. How old are we? That wasn't animosity. I love your lips. Once we had a dream and in it were banisters floating and plenty of young people leaning. The beautiful leaning of dreams came with us to the edge of this bluff. 
We fed the sparrows with gorgeous silver, silver, sorry, silver ladles, also lemon pie. Do you remember it the same way I do? Funny what we remember of what we invent in sleeping, especially together. So about your lips, it was Sunday and the sea was so green. And this last one is called Something for the Low End, and it's in sections. Dear Alto section, you angel me, or I turn in my wings and fall. You are the afternoon, afternoon curled up in. Your work boot in the, your work boot the dangling measures. You speak in money, and money goes south. You backbone the tenors. You give me stead, too. If you were naked, you'd be drawn by a steady hand. If you cared a whit about callback, you saunter back late. You are the anti-worry my worries wallow in. You nectar all the aids, trump the glazes in terms of shimmer. You tallish French harlot. I have no knowledge for you. Three. Your parlor is piles of poison pillows. Your shades are so rodeo. Ro-de-o. You are the philosophy philosophy jacks off in. Your blue teardrops pool on my ledges. Four. You forgive half of Chelsea. You training wheel the virgin evenings. Your trailer's gone begging. You look better in cranberry. You're so dark washed, you should take off your sweater, take your hands out of your pockets. Five. Life doesn't have to be this way. It could be handsomer. It could make the sound of crystal beads jumping. It wants to be so accordion on your birthday morning. Never mind what was muted. It's sort of mysterious. It's incredibly transparent. It's above all public blunders and subsequent embarrassment. It's already home in bed by now, poor thing. Thanks. Just going to read one poem. Um, and this is a poem from um, our issue that is uh, about three or four days away from coming out next week. Um, and this is a poem by um, a poet named Tony Morosevich. Um, and she's in uh, San Francisco. And it's kind of a short poem, but it's a, it's a good, fun poem. Uh, it's called Heathcliff. Out here, on the white cliffs with my collar turned up, then turned down. There's a tree, then no tree, a golden hillside a minute ago, now a white wall. Mirage or oasis, panorama or a bad bit of beef. The car lights only go so far, our vision even less. Forget permanence, the fog giveth and the fog taketh away. 
Rail against the dying of the light. Just don't fuck it up for everyone. <laughs> Was that how it went? There's a fig tree. Now it's gone. A child in the street. Gone too. We all want lessons in detachment. We think that will make us care less. Let me make it easy for you. I'm coming over. Or I'm not. issue, um, and I wasn't sure that I had done the right thing by taking the editorship of this magazine um, over from David Satino. Um, it was a lot of work, and I didn't know if I was good at it. I'd always sort of had an interest in, um, in literary magazines, but um, it was this poem, I think, that made me realize that I was going to be doing this for a really long time. Um, and it's by Philip Dacey, whose poems you may or may not know. It's, sort of a, it, it's, it's a three-page poem, but it, it moves really, really quickly. And it's called The Ice Cream Return. I'm in the place neither hot nor cold, neither light nor dark, after death, a no place. And someone comes and says, because death's daughter is getting married, everyone gets a holiday, one hour in some yes place. And mine is back in the ice cream novelty factory where I lasted less than a day in my teens. But now I am glad to be there even if I am reliving the worst hour on the assembly line as I snap cardboard cartons into shape and fill them with ice cream bars on a stick while the conveyor belt speeds up and the foreman is watching and scowling so that when I notice a cuticle on my left hand has been sliced by the sharp edge of the thin cardboard and drops of blood are falling onto the assembly line as I work, I dare not say anything or break my rhythm, but just keep working faster and faster further wounding the cuticle from which greater drops splat onto the relentless line until the foreman erupts shouting about some fudgesicles going down the line with can it be blood on them and follows the red trail back to my busy hands and me whom he tells to get off his line and out of his sight forever but this time because I am dead because I have only 20 minutes left by now I do not guiltily acquiesce as I did before but instead just stand there and tell him how beautiful the blood-stained fudgesicles are, picking one up and beginning to eat it as I speak, telling him also he is beautiful, particularly his shouting, which is like an outburst of passion in an opera, that even the flimsy cardboard container feels like love in the hands, and that the endless conveyor belt, that tongue, whispers a prophecy about my co-workers on the line, high school dropouts of various ages and colors who stare at me as if I were a ghost, how their lives are burning up, and he, the foreman, should grieve and give them bonuses and raises, but by this time now he is really sore and sounding like an entire orchestra in a pit, and I have gathered up an armful of bloody fudgesicles which would only be thrown away anyway, but which I mean to smuggle across the border into the other world, when suddenly I stun everyone in that room by not exiting through the door the foreman points me toward, but evanescing in a way they have seen only in certain movies, flesh to vapor to nothing, and that as I do, I hope that nothing I am carrying melts in transit so that I can live forever in death 
by licking a souvenir from my holiday, something cold and sweet and bearing the sticky mark of seriousness, my life so handily upon a stick. And one final thing, a little short poem by um, Denise Duhamel, who's also a poet I'm sure you know. If you love contemporary poetry, it's a little um, prose poem. Before I finish, I want to thank um, Linda and Donna um, for helping us um, pull this together. Um, thank Ohio and Library Association, which is one of the greatest um, organizations in the state of Ohio. I also want to thank um, my student editors, um, Pablo Tangway, Jen Town, um, Brock Kingsley, Jason Gray, um, and all of my former um, editors, student editors, who, without whom we would not I guarantee you, we would not have had um, 34 years of the journal. This is called Post-Poet Obit. The poster child for post-poetry guaranteed her posterity when she penned a post-print book, linking post-feminism to post-hypnotic suggestion and post-Emily Post post-traumatic stress. The post-menopausal post-poet postulated, most post-modernly, on Kellogg's post-serial, post-apocalyptic goalposts, and post-nasal drip. Her post-doctoral work po linking post-it notes and web postings left its post-dated post-mark. Her positions on post-colonial post-nuptials shocked most post-structuralists. Her post-millennial posturing about post-pubescent girls, girls post-playing post-office and post-industrial, post-global rumpus rooms was positively post-catchword. Even her post-hoc theory on post-diluvial post-impressionism was picked up post-haste by the post-New York Post. <laughs> her research into the post-op, post-human condition, and postpartum depression was postponed when post-Hollywood asked her to write postscripts for The Postman Always Ring Twice and Il Postino. Her post-poetry pamphlet, post-glacial postcards, will be published posthumously. <laughs> A post-mortem reveal the post-poet died peacefully in post-coital sleep in her four-poster bed. Sympathies can be sent to her publisher's post office box. Viewing hours are four to eight, post-meridian. Thank you, everybody, for coming.